O me, O wife, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, of myself forever reproaching myself, for who more foolish than I, and who more faithless, of eyes that vainly crave the light, of the objects mean, of the struggle ever renewed, of the poor results of all, of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest, with the rest me intertwined. The question, O oh me, so sad recurring, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Hey everyone, welcome back to Solocene. This is the 14th episode in our storytelling series. And today we're going to be talking about the story of the Solocene, feminism, and the history of actors. Yeah, we are recording in what I would call a new studio today. And it's very hot. So again, if we sound sweaty, that's why. Yeah, it also might be noisy, but we're gonna we're gonna work through it. It's gonna be good. Right. Um, before we jump into it. You can follow us on YouTube if you're into the YouTubes and like, subscribe if you're watching on there. And also feel free to follow us on whatever platform you're on. We also have a zine which comes out with each semester. There's going to be one coming out in a few weeks. So stay tuned for that. And finally, we have Field Notes, which is a weekly letter that you can receive. If you'd like to do that, there's a Google form down below. You can sign up in. <laughs> Articulate. Thank um, you. I need to get into the rhythm, I think. It's nice that you mentioned the zine because our first edition of the zine, which corresponded with the degrowth semester, actually included a poem by Walt Whitman, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that is also who opened this episode. Unfortunately, I did not write that uh, O me, mm. O wife poem because Walt Whitman is my answer to the first question of today, which is kind of like, if the solo scene was a story, who would you want to tell it? So we've been like toying around with doing a kind of storytelling biographical episode and how to phrase it and you know like some kind of rushmore of storytellers for the solo scene or who would be kind of a foundational artist of the solo scene i think this is the nicest way of putting it um and yeah i went with the the american poet whitman what do you know about him i don't know much about him besides that the dark academics love him oh yeah and in dead poet society they frequently reference him right uh, oh, Captain, my captain. Yes. That's a nice movie, though, right? It's a really great movie. So it's a, it's a good place to start. And also, it's almost that time of year again. It is. Aaron's getting <laughs> a little bit fallish. Yeah. He's has an eye towards the plaids, an eye towards the browns and the corduroys. <laughs> I feel like some people have the pumpkin spice season. Yeah. But for me, it's the dead poet season. Mm -hmm. But also, it's it's not just funny because it's like, it's... It's out of character with the rest of the, the year for me. Mm -hmm. It's just like the opposite of my my person, my mm -hmm. character. So that's why I think it's it's just like a weird change that happens. Yeah. It's like animals that <laughs> migrate or something like that. Yes. So, Mr. Whitman, he was born in 1819. He died in 1892. He lived mainly around the east coast of America, like Long Island, Brooklyn, places like that except he also toured the American frontier and wrote a lot of poems about that. Nice. During the Civil War, he went and lived in Washington, D.C., and cared for the wounded in hospitals. Mm -hmm. So his poems, some of them have like a, a Civil War theming, and a lot of them, I would just say most of them, have a real 
heartbeat of America theory. Okay. I had this, a couple quotes. One of them, he is America. Oh. And the other one by Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said that uh, Whitman's first kind of self-published collection of poems called Leaves of Grass is the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed. Wow. So I like that. It's the sense of like, this is the new world's contribution to an ancient tradition mm. of poetry and the canon. And something like initially that I think is, is relevant for the solo scene with regards to Whitman is that he, from what I can tell, had this self-awareness the whole time of himself in the in the place of a lineage of great poets, great authors, great storytellers. And indeed, actually reading about him, he had quite the ego, um, considering himself basically like this uh, messianic figure of poetry, which is quite funny. But that's beside the point. Um, the reason I chose him to be the storyteller for the solo scene is that he tends to find beauty in the everyday quite a lot and also in nature. And I would call his poems, first and foremost, really like feeling poems and sensual. And they have just a really great manner of depicting the rush of wind across a landscape or a mountain. You know, that's why I'm talking about the frontier. He was very much on the on the borders, I think, of like the the new civilization and the, the wilderness, which we've talked a little bit before, frontier mindset. The frontier um, conception of the universe, I guess, or of life in general, is something that should be present in the solar scene because I think it's something that humans have missed a lot since industrialization or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I went a very similar route with my answer, so I'm glad that we're on the same page here because it's always interesting to see when we have a question about how we conceptualize the solar scene, if we might differ, or if we might converge on some ideas. True, it's true. Yeah. Anything else about Whitman? Yeah, so he was known as the father of free verse. Oh. He didn't invent it, but he contributed a lot. And his poems, I think, really show just the, the beauty of natural language rather than having to force it into a template. Mm -hmm. I love rhyming poems. and I love structure and stanzas and different forms and things like this. But also, I find when I write, most often it just resembles prose more so, or nice-sounding prose. So... I like that uh, Whitman was kind of a progenitor for that. And also, I was thinking about that idea of like, he embodies America, or he's really American. And I was like, that's kind of weird for me to say that as a solo scene mm -hmm. uh, storyteller, because we haven't really, it's not like a national thing. It's a, it's a time-based thing, not a place. Mm -hmm. But, and I was like, maybe I could just brush that aside or say, well, Whitman, except for this, but this really is the whole of Whitman. So I was mm -hmm. like, what are some some nice comparisons or some nice uh, analogs I can find. And I think that the idea of early America, which is what he embodies or in the 1800s, like those, the nice ideas that it was at least superficially, some might say today, built on and that mm -hmm. united the country in the fabric of it, I think is also nice ideas that could do the same for the Soviet Yeah, I mean, like... Theoretically, it could be everyone's welcome. It's all about trying to create the best society possible. It's just and free and yeah. everyone's happy and content and well. Um, obviously, didn't come to pass. But I do like the idea that it can be used as a an inspiration mm -hmm. to reappropriate it or whatever to the solo scene. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when I think about like Whitman, the images that come to mind are like a wide open 
like uh, Yellowstone National Park or something mm-hmm. like that. It's just like real texture. Yeah, texture, I guess. But tactility. But yeah, tactility. But but also, but natural first and foremost. Mm-hmm. The, it's a rugged landscape, is what I see. Yeah, for sure. When I picture the solo scene, I picture a lot of new technology and economic systems and political systems. Like it's going to be a lot of new things, but the heart of it is just trying to be more like nature, trying to mimic nature almost in its harmony and in its peace and in its self-regulating systems and everything. So I also went in that direction and chose two. I chose two because I couldn't really decide. Okay. So I chose two authors slash scientists who I thought would tell the story really well. So I chose Robin Wall Kimmer and Mary Oliver. So Robin Wall Kimmer is bringing us the organism of the week. What? Organism nine minutes in? This is crazy. Sweetgrass. Yeah. So you can describe it. It looks like very minimalist. Probably one of our most minimalist organisms so far. (laughs) Um, A hunk of celery with some green fingers on one end. Or you could just say a blade of grass but it's so that has gone to seed. Yeah, okay. Sure. Yeah, so sweet grass kind of just looks like long, broadleaf grass. And yeah, Robin Wall Kimmer kind of came to fame through her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, but she was first and foremost a biologist in study. And so you think you're going to read this book written by a biologist. You expect it to be very academic. However, that's what the whole book is about, is how when she decided she wanted to be a biologist, it came from a spiritual and aesthetic perspective from her indigenous tradition. And she was like, well, it just makes sense that these two things grow together because they're beautiful or they work together in medicine or they work together in food, like the three sisters, whatever it may be. And she took a very aesthetic and beautiful and natural approach to then learning about the sciences, to then learning about psychology, to then almost justifying things that have just been universally known or ancient wisdom for a long time. And I really like that. Back to the sweetgrass. It's an aromatic herb native to northern Eurasia and North America, considered sacred in many indigenous peoples in Canada and the United States of America, also used in making beverages. Ooh. Interesting. (laughs) It has a sweet scent, as you can imagine, based on the name. Yeah. And it's able to grow in the Arctic Circle. Not many things grow there. No. And finally, it repels mosquitoes, which I think is cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Today, I learned something new, Aaron just knew that. Pretty cool. (laughs) So, back to my people. The reason that I picked these two is because they both traveled a lot across North America. And they were able to find threads of story throughout so many different places like they both lived probably both coasts of North America like they've lived all over but they find these threads of story and when I picture the solo scene it's like every town every like small community is going to have its own systems that work for them it's not all going to be the exact same because that would be like that wouldn't work if we tried to mandate every area has to be like this So when we're telling the story of it, we need to try and find a way to find the thread that will link together all the parts of the solo scene, despite their differences. Mm -hmm. And it also will be very metaphorical. So that's why I picked Mary Oliver, not just Robin, because Mary Oliver, throughout her career, has become more and more 
Hemingway-esque. She's gotten more and more concise. So when she started writing, she had these very flowery prose, or not prose, poems. She's a poet. And then over time, she got more and more concise, but her poems have never lost their weight. So she's really honed her craft of using metaphors to convey emotion and also convey stories, facts about places, because she really gets fascinated in different ecological systems, and then she tries to put them into poems. And I just think in the solo scene, it will be a very much a balance between the scientific, the aesthetic, and the spiritual. And I think these two do that very well. Nice. A mosaic, kind of depicting like this mosaic of different narratives intertwined with uh, a healthy respect for nature, scientific respect even. Yeah. Um, next question, just a small one, mm -hmm. is to, we each kind of featured a feminist story that we wanted to talk about. I kind of said on last week's episode, yeah, let's talk about feminism and storytelling next week. That would just but, be a whole semester in itself, yeah, probably. Yeah, I think we didn't want to intrude on any future plans and also would have made today a rather crowded episode. We've been quite busy. I think that would have been a lot of preparation. <laughs> so we just had a little, little segment, which is um, probably not doing... The topic justice but at least we can say we covered it a little bit yeah for sure um so the feminist story that i want to talk about is called herland h-e-r-l-a-n-d and it was written in 1915 it's a very short book by charlotte perkins gilman and i read this about maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago and the reason i read it is not because i wanted to read feminist literature but because it is often cited as like utopian literature, which is something mm -hmm. that we're really interested in. Um, obviously, Solacene is relevant to that. And it's about three men who, I think they're Americans, they go exploring in the jungle. I think it's rather vague about exactly where it is, um, because the, it's, a, it's a lot more of a metaphorical story than it is like a real fantasy. Mm -hmm. But they basically discover, discover this completely secluded, isolated society that is all women. Mm -hmm. And it has been like this for many generations because there was some, basically just some narrative magic that allowed them to keep reproducing without men. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and they come in with a lot of, once they learn about this, obviously they're initially disbelieving, but also they are very skeptical about how such a society would function because they think that men are crucial to society and culture and all this stuff, and they think there's going to be a lot of infighting. And I had a quote actually about just like the misconceptions that the three main characters had. Read this from the book. Okay. He's referencing the book. He's opening it. He's turning the page. He's crinkling the pages. <laughs> so it says, And we had been cocksure as to the inevitable limitations, the faults and vices of a lot of women. We had expected them to be given over to what we called feminine vanity, frills and fur billows, and we found they had evolved a costume more perfect than the Chinese dress, richly beautiful when so desired, always useful, of unfailing dignity and good taste. We had expected a dull, submissive monotony, and found a daring social inventiveness far beyond our own, and a mechanical and scientific development fully equal to ours. We had expected pettiness, and found a social consciousness beside which our nations looked like quarreling children, feeble-minded ones at that. We had expected jealousy, and found a broad sisterly affection, a fair-minded intelligence to which we could produce no parallel. We had expected hysteria and found a standard of health and vigor, a 
a calmness of temper to which the habit of profanity, for instance, is impossible to explain. We tried it. And the book is, as that quote kind of implies, a first-person narrative about the guy of the three who's probably the most like understanding over the course of the narrative, whereas there's one who's, his name's Terry, I think, is just a outright misogynist, and there's one who's just kind of just along for the ride. Mm-hmm. But this guy starts, I mean, I think he was a scientist, so he starts with like scientific curiosity, and eventually, as his questions are answered by the women who are, in a way, keeping them captive, but in a way, just keeping them, period. Mm-hmm. Um, he, yeah, comes around to it. And I don't think the book is perfect. I think it's, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit flawed, I think, because it portrays utopia, but there are other conflating factors to the fact that it's all women. There's also the fact mm-hmm. that it's completely isolated, which I think would be rather good in terms of weeding out um, bad things over the course of societies and like perfecting rather than expanding. Um, the thing is that they couldn't really expand and there wasn't there were no other people to war with and things like this. So, mm, so you just have to turn the attention inwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I don't think it's perfect from that sense, but it challenged notions that I had, which is pretty much all you can ask for from literature, especially challenged notions I didn't really know I had, but found the, the male characters like iterating. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because I was trying to ask myself like feminist literature or like stories, de- stories with deliberate social activism themes, you know, a deliberate purpose when they're written. Mm-hmm. I was like, what makes these good? And the best way I can, when they're good, that is, what makes mm-hmm. them, what can make them good? The best way I could put it was that, for instance, um, good feminist literature stories aren't separate from good literature. They're just good literature that might have these certain themes. And mm-hmm. that goes for everything, I think. Because you can t- call them like stories for change or stories that try to invoke change in the society or whatever. But I think that all good stories do that period. Like, However innocuous it may seem, if it's a good story, it will probably ins- at least try to inspire some kind of change. So a movie as small as what we saw the other night, Moonrise Kingdom, Wes mm-hmm. Anderson. It's like, it doesn't seem as serious or kind of socially conscious as something might Herland be. Um, but also it will at least try to inspire you to be what kinder, more loving, yeah. gentler, you know, nice things basically. Mm-hmm. Um, childlike. It just, it, it doesn't have as its theme like gender parity, mm-hmm. but it also, it does have as its theme like nice things that it wishes to inspire in people which would improve the world. So it's kind of like, I think every story is a story for change. So yeah. I think we actually do certain, uh, like, of those more socially conscious themed works a bit of a disservice when we lump them in a separate box because then it makes yeah. them seem like they're separate from, well, here's the main art and here's, like, the, the library books or whatever. Yeah, for sure. That's a really good point because when I was looking at stories, the first one that came to mind was basically a nonfiction book that I had read and I was like, well, I probably shouldn't do this because it is, as you said, separate. And then I went back to try and find some stories that I liked that I thought were a bit more that I just liked for the sake of them. And they happened to be yeah. very feminist. And so my first one that I was going to recommend anyway is just, well, the author, her name is Lucy Peach. And she wrote a book called Period Queen, which I found very enlightening. I read it as like a 22-year-old and I was like, 
wow, learning new things, really important about how women are in the world. And she always, she's a comedian, so it's like entertaining, but it's also super well-researched because she's also a sex educator. And I was like, I like this. And then I was like, that's not really a story. Despite the fact that her comedy definitely is narrative because most comedians are. So she has a show. It's more of like a sketch comedy thing. So check that out if that's your thing. But then I went back to the the canon and said, what are my favorite stories that are feminist? And the first one that came to mind was Kiki's Delivery Service. But I feel like we've talked about that to death yeah. over the years. Um, so I'll just leave that there. I just feel like it depicts all the elements of womanhood very well. Coming of age, it shows all the ages. It's like young girl all the way up to an older woman. And I really like that. And then my two favorites, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Persepolis. So Portrait of a Lady on Fire is mainly known for the movie. And then Persepolis, I think, is mainly known for the graphic novel. It's all I've ever read. I didn't watch the movie. But those both depict... They're very coming of age. Persepolis is set during a revolution. And the main character is like coming of age amongst a lot of turmoil. And then Portrait of a Lady on Fire is very similar to Herland. It's in the end, it's kind of like you realize there's not a man on screen mm. besides the very beginning and very end. Okay. And it's like all these women on an island kind of taking care of each other and learning about themselves, learning about how society might perhaps disadvantage them because they're women. It's set in the 1800s, so different time period, but still relevant themes. Yeah. <laughs> Those are my shout-outs for today. What do you think about the all-female Ghostbusters reboot? Feminist work? I think... (laughs) (laughs) Do you want me to... Okay. I think it's like, yeah, there has to be a conscious effort to include women, to include people of color, to include different people in stories. But when it's just almost explicitly to make money, the way that I feel like it was in Ghostbusters, to be like, oh, girl power. Because you can almost tell based on the reaction. Like, if a story is put out and it's, like, there's a genuinely, like, the feminists uptake it as, like, a, oh, this is really cool. We should share this. We should watch this together. But, like, no one, no feminist group that meets on a university campus was, like, let's get together and watch Ghostbusters. Because mm. it didn't bring anything to the table. Well, I think, it's <laughs> back to what I said about it can't be separate from, like, in movies, it can't be separate. Like, here are the good movies and here are the feminist ones. Yeah. It's, like, um, it has to, first and foremost, be well-made or well-written, well-filmed, whatever. And then it's almost incidental in a lot of people's eyes if it's all women, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, I mean, this is probably played to death, but like you can't just put women in men's roles and be like, oh, we're so feminist. Opening the can of worms today. You know what I mean? It's like we can't (laughs) just... Like, that's literally what the Ghostbusters is a good example. It's like, well, we cast women in these roles that were traditionally for men look at us go but it's like that's that's fine to an extent like i really like tomb raider i really i liked um what's that movie called oceans the one with the women oh yeah i don't know the name of that oceans 11 oceans i think it is just called oceans 11 yeah like that was really good i really liked that one and it was kind of just like women recast in men's roles but it was done in a way that was not just oh these are also moms so they have an extra layer it was it was good so I think it depends on the film. Ghostbusters didn't really do that for me. I can't speak on this. <laughs> if I speak, I am in trouble. <laughs> Next question. 
was about the role of uh, actors, performers through history today and how it will be in the solar scene. I wanted to open with a quote from Nicolas Cage. He says, I don't act. I feel and I imagine and I channel. Wow. And that's a good starting point because I wanted to go all the way back to shamanism. Okay. In the, well, goes all the way back to the very beginning of humans, most likely. Um, I learned a lot about this in my ancient and medieval theater class. We kind of trace the lineage of acting from, as the, the teacher asserted, um, shamanism all the way to today in Hollywood and everything. And it was really fascinating to me, the, the intersection of religious performativity and storytelling. And I think, like it sounds kind of um, insensitive or offensive because I think people view the word performance as very, like a negative thing. Yeah, like, as oh, if so it's mocking. Or, yeah, like, oh, so yeah. they're lying or like, oh, so it's, it's just pretending. I don't think performance is just pretending. That's why I open with the Nicolas Cage quote. Yeah, I think it can be very reverent. Mm. I mean, you've mentioned Moonrise Kingdom and that there's the whole Noah's Ark play. And it's yeah. like, they're not making fun of it. They're in a church. They're telling the story of Noah's Ark. They might be dressed up as animals, which is kind of funny and entertaining, but it's still just communicating. Yeah. Yeah. So with the shamans who I'm going to just describe as charismatic mediators. Okay. Because often, um, I think this is very reductive, but often they would kind of solve problems for their people mm -hmm. and things like this. And they had access to the spirit world and others would often watch eagerly and mm -hmm. see what they would retrieve, see what they would bring back. And I think that's similar to the way we all sit down and watch um, actors on a screen or on a stage as a bridge between us and something transcendent. Also, often there was there was a whole communal theater around the performance. So like mm. people would be dancing, chanting, singing to invoke this state of... Openness. Yeah, sure, openness. Yeah. Um, that's really fun. Like, I didn't know much about theater history. You probably know more than me because of your course history. <laughs> but... My first thought when I was trying to figure out the role of actors in society is like they facilitate emotional and sometimes spiritual experiences in a way yeah. that we don't have on a daily basis. But you can sit down for a movie or go to a play and literally come away a changed person. Mm -hmm. One of my friends once said when they watched Silence, you know that movie? They were like, I believed for that was two and a half hours because it was just such a religious experience. religious experience of watching that film. And it's like there's so many things that these people have the power to like change society. And it's cool that it, that's kind of its roots is like as facilitators of spiritual change. Yeah. I was uh, kind of put on this track by Shia LaBeouf, infamous, uh, you love him or you hate him. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think he recently converted to Catholicism or, or something like that, at least for a role, kind of immersed himself in it. And he did this long interview with a priest, an archbishop, something like that. Okay. Excuse my ignorance there. But he actually said to the person interviewing him, like, yeah, it was, it was performative. And he didn't take it as, as offensive. He said, yeah, it is performative. But as I say, that doesn't mean we're just lying or making everything up. It means mm -hmm. that you are playing out rituals. Like, it's ritualistic is another way of putting it. Mm -hmm. As in, there are things that you um, are scripted for you. You do mm -hmm. them. It's like that. And the, there can be religious significance within that is kind of the whole point. Um, moving on from there, I wanted to talk about these certain types of plays called morality plays, mm -hmm. which were big in medieval times, uh, especially in England, in which characters are presented 
as like personified virtues or sins. Yeah. So literally the play will be populated by goodness, charity, selfishness, greed, lust, mm-hmm. like all these types of things. And they'll be warring and there'll be a protagonist. Like there's one that's just called, there's one play called Mankind. Okay. The protagonist is Mankind and he's trying to navigate all these different uh, influences. And usually what would happen, they're, they're very Christian themed, mm-hmm. um, is that the protagonist would be kind of redeemed at the end. They'd go through a journey, like a, a Christian journey, and then at the end they'd be redeemed. And often they would kind of lecture the audience mm. into also repenting or whatever it may be. And I thought these were really funny because today such a common refrain that the movies is, we don't want to be preached at. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't do anything like that. But it's like, I think stories have always been for preaching. Yeah, that's what stories are. They're to like make it understandable to our minds. Mm. I feel like we're on a very Christian theme today, but like that's why Jesus was so prolific because he would use yeah the, the parables. The parables, yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember also that for this assignment in my ancient medieval theater class, I had to write um, what was it a scene a scene from a morality play, mm-hmm. or I chose to. Do you remember what I wrote about? I don't remember. It, the the main character, I think, was youth. Okay. And the people that they were he was vying against was um, Instagram, Amazon, and I want to say YouTube. It was okay. like th- three different personifications of the internet, and they would go into a cave and like try and tempt him and things like this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was really funny. Yeah, that is a very Aaron moral it's that true. you want to get across. <laughs> Preserve the youth. Yeah. Ward off the evil spirits the of only the thing, tube. The only thing more Aaron um, than me would have been if I had had a character called Soacene and he'd been plugging <laughs> <laughs> his podcast and everything. Yeah. I love that. Has So all throughout the, this history, because as I said, you know more, I thought was thinking a bit about how actors are always physically separated from humans. Yeah. From humans, from the audience. No, there was this quote, actually. I think it was from a Tom Stoppard play where he said, um, we're the opposite of humans. We're actors. Yeah. But I was thinking that a lot. I'm like, because all throughout history, actors have been set apart. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. No other job is so set apart besides, obviously, like religious leaders are very yeah, set apart. But it's just like, why are they so different? And I was thinking last week we talked about creativity and like what makes a creative person. And it's like people who are so oozing creativity have a very different mindset and different way that their brain functions. They're way more open. They're usually at the cutting edge of progress. That's why I feel like more artistic people tend towards like more liberal views or at least progressive views. And I think, yeah, their brains might work different, which is kind of cool. And yeah, back to the physical separation, because I was thinking a bit about the soul scene, which we'll get to more so, but I was just like, Will they be as separate in the solo scene? And I think they still will be. Maybe not mm. such a celebrity kind of... That's the thing. I think, it, as we say, it's natural that they're a little bit of a separate class. Mm-hmm. But why does it have to be separated by wealth? That's a, such, a big, uh, such a big gap is a, is a question. Yeah. I was also thinking about in the solo scene, there might be like a middle class of actors. So there'll be like perhaps the ones that are on screen. Like there's really no way to bridge the gap between a screen and a viewer for the most part, unless you have someone giving a presentation but that's still not going to be the actors mm-hmm. but i think the middle class of actors what i mean by that is just like more localized theater smaller scale film production people that you can actually know and meet and like it's just smaller because it's like i think there would still be as we know the soul scene hollywood so like 
these films will probably spread all over. Yeah. I'm not against that, but they'll also be much more local because right now there's not really an, a local theater scene. There might be one, but it's very niche. It'll be a bit more commonplace. Let's talk about theater kids. <laughs> We're going there. Would you consider yourself a theater kid? Certainly not. No? I'm, I'm the opposite of a theater kid. Yeah. I'm a, I don't know, I'll put that. You're a, you're a math kid. Oh. Calculator kid. Yeah. Calculator I'm, kid. I'm definitely... <laughs> the thing is, I didn't discover my poetic soul until I was well into my teens. So mm-hmm. I think I missed the formative theater kid years in mm-hmm. which they... Um, like it probably needs to be early that they be looked at. Yeah. I mean, physically get observed. Yeah, on stage. Yeah. They have less stage fright. They get more comfortable. Because now I'm like all sheepish. Yeah. Makes sense. Because I feel like... The thing with theater kids is perhaps they start so young that they never actually develop that fear. Yeah, exactly. So it's like people perhaps start later in life, they get over the fear, but they're not the same. There's a different essence. So what we're saying is that everyone in the solo scene will be a theater kid? All the kids? I'm actually not against that. But here's what I think, though. If everyone was a theater kid, no one would be. And so they would, no offense, theater kids, but they wouldn't have this sense of self-importance. (laughs) <laughs> and also the sense of, like, you know what I'm talking about. There is a sense of superiority within, like, a lot of subcultures have it, but theater kids have it, I've seen yeah. it firsthand. Um, and also there wouldn't be this slight um, disingenuousness sometimes, which you feel like they're hamming it up because they know they're the theater kids, so they have to be, <laughs> like, a little bit obnoxious with it. Yeah. Again, no offense, but people will be more <laughs> free, which also means that the theater kids can sometimes just stand still. <laughs> without singing in line at the cafeteria or something. oh my goodness I, I feel like it's funny because you and I have both kind of dabbled in the theater kid genre of of being of being like I was in theater you were in theater at different points in our lives and it's just kind of funny because we we started later so it's like yeah we have that we're very self-aware well, you didn't start later I thought you um I mean I did ballet oh yeah which we'd put on plays but ballet is so would you call yourself a theater kid I don't think I'll ever... You don't have the essence. I don't you, have the essence. You could have been one. I could have been Your resume. one. resume. Yeah, my Bush? resume. Shrub? I was never a shrub. Who are you? Duck? I was a cat. Yeah. I was a little boy. <laughs> <laughs> I was a gypsy boy. <laughs> I was just always cast as... And a demon. I was a demon. I've been a lot of things. <laughs> I was a cook. I was a mermaid. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of have the theater kid essence in me, but I... They always just were so much cooler than I was. Yeah. Like, I love theater kids and kind of wish I had become one. Maybe someday. Well, what it is, I think it's an envy <laughs> for their unerring confidence and creativity. Yeah. And that's something that can be the template for the solo scene kids. And then I want to talk a little bit about today's fame and culture and how in the solo scene we'll be dismantling that mm-hmm. with regards to actors. So why is it there? I thought about perhaps there's a correlation with the fact that we went from seeing people on a stage, usually quite small because we'll be sitting near the back, to faces, giant faces blown up on a screen. Mm-hmm. And we kind of worship them. Yeah. Um, in a way. At least we're all like, we're all sitting really low and there's this face really big blown up like in Citizen Kane or something like that. Mm-hmm. And because of this, I think most or many actors today are less actors and more models. Mm-hmm. They're more chosen because they look nice. Yeah. And in the solo scene, I mean, that's is unavoidable because film is a visual medium. Mm-hmm. But I think there will be maybe a little bit more of a push towards, let's not just have the pretty faces. Now. Let's actually try and say something. And, and therefore, yeah. let's not just cycle the same hundred actors over and over. 
Let's yeah. have a little bit more variety in here. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also thinking that there's, there's a certain mystique, mystery around acting right now. It's like, how do they do it? Yeah. Um, I, I could never do that. But, you know, they present these emotions in a way that I certainly don't. Also, I think it's, it's a weird filtering down where everyone's acting now on, in, on TikTok, right? Or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like those TikToks where people film themselves crying. Yeah. It's like, well, you're not in a movie. Yeah. But it's a weird way that it's kind of changed our brain. But I think that there could be a little bit, the, the mystery is always going to be there a little bit, as mm -hmm. you said, always has been. But we could um, maybe have people appreciate the art form more by um, promoting local theater. And as we say, having everyone be a theater kid. Kind of, um, maybe then they would worship actors a little bit less. I don't know. And also, I was thinking more transparency with the other people working on the movie, especially I think so, yeah. the, the writers and the directors. Because, like, if you think about, I don't know, Fight Club, mm -hmm. you think about Brad Pitt and he's espousing all these virtues of masculinity or whatever, you're probably misunderstanding what the point of the movie is. But Brad Pitt didn't actually write those words, he's mm -hmm. just saying them. He's just like, a, not just, but he's, a, he's the vessel. He's, channeling the spirit of the character and he's presenting it to you but he's channeling it from a script that was written by someone mm. else whose name we probably don't know yeah making screenplays a lot more commonplace would be kind of cool yeah i think that'd be neat the way that we read plays in school we can read screenplays in school just the same mm. yeah I think that's important i always wish i knew more about cinematography yeah. Lighting, just like things that it would be interesting to know about, but there's really no way to learn because those people aren't documented, I suppose. Well, today they are quite a lot, but they're not pushed by the media so much. But mm -hmm. it's, it's changing. But I think that all those or various of those elements are just as important to that religious or life changing experience we were talking about in a story um, as is the actor portraying it well. Mm -hmm. Like, the cinematography matters quite a lot and you can have lasting images. The score matters a ton. Mm. And musicians aren't really worshipped in the way that actors are musicians for film, that is. Yeah. So, yeah, just different ways of, of talking about The movies. performances, yeah. yeah. And cool. I think it's funny because in plays, we, we kind of do center the writer a little bit more yeah. than we do in film. I mean, even at the end of plays, they always clap the lighting, clap to the orchestra, clap yeah. to the person in the wings. Like, they're... Because I guess... Whereas in film, when you look at credits, it's the, the name of the actors usually that comes first. Yeah, for sure. Wow. This is very inspiring to me. I feel like my brain's kind of going really fast. <laughs> um, one thing that I was thinking considering the solo scene is like there won't be so many parasocial relationships because we'll have more real relationships. So yeah, I feel like yeah. the reason that celebrity has gotten to the point that we're obsessed with what people are doing in their free time, what their house looks like, what mm -hmm. they're wearing is because we don't have that in our neighborhoods because yeah. it's like challenging to do that because people are so alienated. So I think in the solo scene, it'll be a bit more, you can just be a bit more concerned yeah, about what's happening around these, you. These kind of characters in our real life. Yeah. So instead of being like, oh, there's that really, uh, kind of, there's that jerk who's always talking about fighting and stuff. Yeah. Um, in Fight Club, like instead of that being a character, we just know that guy from across the street or whatever. Yeah. We don't really like him. Never wear a shirt, but that's beside the point. Yeah. I don't know why Fight Club comes to mind. It's a weird, like, it movie is. to keep referencing, but, it is. you know. That's the way we do it here on Solo Scene. Next episode is going to be the last in the storytelling semester, so tune in to that. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye.